Ashish Jha spent more than 15 years analyzing mountains of data and crafting lofty policy solutions to some of the country's biggest healthcare problems. Gaps in insurance, expensive medical care, then, China has confirmed that the newly discovered coronavirus, the pandemic hit. The number of confirmed global cases of coronavirus rises to more than 10,000. Suddenly, the wonky professor was thrust into the TV spotlight. His almost daily interviews guided terrified Americans as an unknown virus swept the globe. Get one of those rapid tests for the child, maybe before they see grandma or grandpa. I think that helps. Two years later, President Joe Biden tapped Ashish to become the nation's next COVID czar. With the pandemic waning, he's now back in the world of studies and scholarship, leading Brown University's School of Public Health. Today, Ashish's shift from studying policy to implementing it. From the studio at the Leonard Davis Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, I'm Dan Gorenstein. This is Tradeoffs. Ashish Jha's life largely looks like it did in 2020. He, again, is running Brown's public health school, makes the same commute from the Boston suburbs to Providence, and still has that sonorous voice. Okay, I'm recording now. He even stands at the same desk at Brown where, during the height of the pandemic, day after day, Ashish gave interviews to Fox. They're still really preliminary. We don't have great evidence. CNN. They're very safe and effective vaccines. And if you're fully vaccinated, your chances of getting really sick or dying are infinitesimally small. ABC. I think it's incredibly important as we head into the holidays for people to update their immunity. Always with the same piece of colorful artwork hanging on the back wall. Green, gray, and blue squares behind him. While everything may look the same, though, Ashish says he's changed, and he began to sense that after Americans he never met mailed him letters, holiday cards, and pictures of themselves in front of copies of that painting from his office. I think it was this sense of connection that people were developing with folks, and my sense was that for some people, connecting with the art behind my shoulder was another way of kind of building that bond. Ashish became an easy-to-understand, trusted doctor who helped many of us navigate our daily decisions. It's very real. It's very raw. It feels like I do not feel like I deserve to have that kind of place in people's lives. You know, it's been very emotional. Ashish had made a name for himself as thoughtful, measured, and accessible. During both the Trump and Biden administrations, Ashish was critical without throwing firebombs. That, coupled with his exposure, landed him calls from the Biden White House. With a, hey, interesting op-ed in the Washington Post, not sure I agree with point number two. Like, okay, let's talk about it. And then we discuss it. In early 2022, as the Omicron wave dipped, calls with the administration spiked. Ashish talked with Biden's then chief of staff, Ron Klain, about how to adapt the response. Eventually, Ashish was invited down to Washington. It was the first time I had ever been inside the White House at all. Mostly, it's just surreal. Like, this doesn't happen. You know, people are like, were you nervous? I'm like, I don't even know what the right word is. Like, I was, this just was like a movie. Then he walks in. He sits down next to me. We start chatting. 
And then, like, we get real deep real fast. You know, he has a, like, little card of, like, prompts. And so one of the, I just, one of the words was, like, testing. And then he says, you've been pretty critical of our testing strategy. I said, I have, sir. I'm sorry. Were you feeling like an asshole? <laughs> it wasn't great. It wasn't great. I was feeling like, oh. Um, and then about 30 minutes into the meeting, he does the thing that Joe Biden does, which is he puts his hand on my arm and says, would you please join my administration? The country needs you in this role. I'd really like for you to do this. And I say, sir, it would be the honor of a lifetime. I'm heading out the door and I say to Ron, let me guess, he's batting a thousand when he does that hand on the arm. And he's like, yeah, pretty close. Pretty close. Ashish, so I'm curious how this opportunity to become the COVID czar for the country dovetailed with how you wanted to grow in your own career. There were a bunch of people who were like, this is a terrible idea. I'm like, well, I've already said yes. So like, thanks for the feedback. And, you know, they were like, COVID is so political and you'll be like seen as a partisan. And right now you're not seen as a partisan. And like what impact this was going to have on my career. Literally, just I never crossed my mind to think about that. It felt like for a country that has given me as much as this country has given me as a kid who's, you know, grew up as a poor immigrant kid in America and to have this as my call to service, like everything else just felt shallow to even think about any of those other things. The only thing that didn't feel shallow was like what the impact was going to be on my wife and, and kids. That was important. And we found a way forward on that. And that was hard. And Ashish, just the smallest pushback, probably who was the president would have mattered, right? Like this call to service. If you radically disagreed with a particular president, you might have said, thanks, but this really isn't a great fit. Yeah, I mean, look, so it's a good question. Let's play that out. If this was a George W. Bush administration, I don't always agree with President Bush. Would I have said yes? Absolutely. This had been the Obama administration. Would I have said yes? Absolutely. Donald Trump was an unusual figure. And I think I would have struggled. And I think because it wasn't just that I had policy disagreements with Donald Trump. I had some fundamental values disagreements. Fair enough. Regardless, Donald Trump did not ask you to sign on, obviously. So let's fast forward to the spring of 2022. You've left Brown. You're in the White House, and you're coming from this world of academia where you had time to think, digest, discuss, and you enter this world of the clock is ticking. How did that shift change how you think about making policy? The reality-based world is just much harder than the one that we get to live in when we write our papers. The policy prescriptions I would have before I went to the White House fully reflected my values. Those were not the perfect policy solutions for America. They were the perfect policy solutions for Ashish Jha and the world he lived in. And that was not the job in the White House. The job was, what is the ideal solution for America to the best of our ability to do? And that required understanding other people's values and other people's priorities and incorporating them. Otherwise, you're railroading people, and that is a bad thing. It just won't sustain. 
after the break. Ashish talks about building consensus, imperfect data, and how researchers can get on the radar in Washington. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. We're back with the Dean of Brown School of Public Health and former White House COVID czar, Dr. Ashish Jha. Ashish. As you pointed out, working in Washington required coming up with solutions that worked for everyone, not just Ashish Jha's perfect policy solution. So tell us a story when you had to build consensus. What does that look like from the White House? You know, during the monkeypox outbreak, I was playing a pretty sizable role in helping manage the White House end of things. There were real genuine, thoughtful disagreements about how to distribute the limited number of vaccines we have. Do we really emphasize getting vaccines out to communities where there are a lot of people living with HIV? It's deadly for people living with HIV. Or do we prioritize sending vaccines to where we're seeing a lot more cases to slow the spread? What if those are not the same places? Like, those are two very reasonable arguments. So, We went through a process of a series of conversations that led to the formula based on how many cases were happening in a community. And part of the formula was how many people were living with HIV in that community. The administration faced criticism for a series of missteps on the monkeypox response. The initial distribution was chaotic. At this point, we failed to contain this. Shots were sent to the wrong states and spoiled in the summer heat. This can't be our response every time that when CDC drops the ball, the White House and the political leadership need to step in. Caseloads rose. Long lines snaked outside vaccination clinics. With new cases of monkeypox surging, demand for the vaccine far outstrips supply. But by that fall, the outbreak was under control. Ashish says their consensus strategy got the job done. And the proof is in the pudding, by the way, that we got the vaccines out and pretty quickly saw the outbreak turn and start getting better. And relatively few people got very, very sick because we did a pretty good job of getting the people who were the highest risk protected pretty quickly. It, it sounds like, Ashish, in Washington, you really internalized how to play well with others in a new way. It's totally right. And here's the thing. Like, people often said to me, well, like, why not just push to do what you think is the right answer? First of all, the right answer is, like, not this monolithic thing. My perfect solution has two problems with it. One, it is mine. And we don't live in a country where we have dictators who get to dictate policy. Even the president of the United States. And people see that as a bug, and I see that as a feature of a democracy. And on policy, 
really reasonable people had different views on how to prioritize those vaccines. And you can listen to those people and say, you're well-intentioned, you're good-hearted, you're smart. I get why you're arguing that. I want to stick with this theme, Ashish, on the transition from researcher with the luxury of time to the hurly-burly world of crisis decision-making. Staying with the monkeypox example. In the past, you and I would talk about getting more information, better data, right? And I'm guessing in this monkeypox moment, that might have been impossible. Can you give an example of how you handled that? There was a question that was put on the table of should we switch the vaccine strategy for monkeypox from subcutaneous to intradermal? So standard vaccine, you just give it subcutaneously below the skin. Intradermals, you actually give it in the middle layer of the skin. It would quintuple the number of doses we had. But then the question is, is it a good idea? Well, there's one study. And what emerged on that one was just incredible level of consensus that I actually didn't expect. Like pretty much everybody was like, this is really smart. I would do it in a heartbeat. That gamble paid off. The CDC found the smaller dose ended up being almost as effective. Ashish, you've been on both ends of the phone. During the early pandemic days, people in Washington and the CDC were calling on you. When you were in the White House, you were the one making calls, asking people to talk to them on Saturdays. How do researchers and academics get people in the White House like you to call them? So there is a deep hunger for evidence and data in Washington and in state houses. So that's the good news for academics. The bad news is you got to give it to them in a way that they can digest. So if somebody's like, I'm really struggling with this question, and you're like, well, let me send you 30 papers I have written over the last eight years. And then once you've read them, if you want, I can come by and give you an hour seminar. People are like, yeah, look, thanks. The second is, one of the things I found really interesting was like the number of people who forget that like I'm a human being. Be a nice person. You don't have to like praise people. I did not, like I had plenty of people I would call who were very critical of the administration. But I thought they kept it as like professional critical. Like, I think the administration is getting this wrong. But like, don't make it personal. And don't be make it vindictive and vitriolic. Third is be willing to answer calls on short notice. Like, I would email people, an occasional person, who would say, you know, next couple of weeks are really busy. I'm in the middle of a grant. Can I, can I get back to you in like three weeks? I'm like, I need an answer by four o'clock today. So no. So to sum up here, Ashish, during your time in Washington, you learned just how narrow an academic's outlook can be and how flexible you must be in real time during a crisis. Now you're back leading Brown School of Public Health. What's one thing you're going to do differently in Providence because of your time in D.C.? I had thought I understood the value of public health practice. I had undervalued it. Like, I think it's extraordinarily important for public health schools to have not just great academic public health leaders, it's also extraordinarily important to have people who have really practiced public health on the front lines. I got to see a lot of of efforts of like, we would come up with policies or the administration would, and then watching senior state health officers try to implement those policies, you realize like that is a set of skills that we do not teach adequately in schools of public health. And when I think about my next group of hires, 
uh, doubling down on the practicality because schools of public health are professional schools. We want to move the world. We don't want to just create science for science sake. And you need that. As people struggled with fear, loss, and loneliness over these past few years, Ashish took on a real role in people's lives. He became a confidant, advisor, and a trusted physician for many of us. This woman wrote me about how her spouse passed away in 2021 from, the, from COVID, just weeks before he got, was eligible to get a vaccine. And how in 2020, like, they spent the whole year essentially watching me. And I became like the person they talked about uh, at the dinner table. That, Ashish says, and his time in Washington has changed him, even if he is still standing at the same desk with the same painting of gray, green, and blue squares over his shoulder. Playing that role thoughtfully and humbly is really important. And in that way, that's a lot of how I feel like the last three and a half years have been, that I got to play this role for a lot of people, and that was very meaningful for me. Ashish Shah, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us on Tradeoffs. Dan Gorenstein, I'm delighted to be back on Tradeoffs. Thank you for having me back. I'm Dan Gorenstein. This is Tradeoffs. In less than two months, Medicare will begin to negotiate prices differently with drug makers for the first time ever. But how will the government land on a fair price? How will they value a drug that works great for one patient, but not for another? At least what Medicare has started out with sounds a little bit more like you take a pinch of this, a pinch of that, and you throw it in a blender and you see what happens. What's at stake as Medicare begins to use its historic new power next time on Tradeoffs. Thanks for listening to Tradeoffs. If you've just discovered us, remember to subscribe to the feed so you never miss an episode. Subscribing is free and easy on whichever podcasting app you use, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, anywhere. The Tradeoffs team is producers Alex Olgan and Ryan Levy, editor Kate Cahan, executive director Jessica Silverman, audience engagement lead Shannon Crane, research reporter Soleil Shah, production engineer Cedric Wilson, sound designer Andrew Perella, executive editor Dan Gorenstein, and senior producer Leslie Walker. The Tradeoffs theme song was composed by Ty Sitterman with additional music this episode from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Thanks also to all our listeners who helped to support our work, including Miriam Rossenau, Marilyn Bartlett, and Lucy Stark. Our media partner is SideFX Public Media, based at WFYI. Tradeoffs is supported by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Arnold Ventures, West Health, the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, the Scan Foundation, the Sozose Foundation, the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics at the University of Pennsylvania, California Healthcare Foundation, and the National Institute for Healthcare Management Foundation. The views expressed in this episode are those of the individuals and not those of trade-off staff, advisors, or funders. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 